0: Here's a favourite of key VFs. Tom. Tom, why don't you give us a little uh, background as to what brings you to Ukraine and what you're doing?
1: All right, sure. I will, I will start from the start then. Um, so I grew up in New Zealand, but I've actually lived in Britain for most of the last 10 years. I went to university in England, and when I graduated, I worked as a parliamentary researcher in where I Uh, research, defense and security issues. Um, following that, I started my career as a freelance journalist a couple of years ago. And before this, I, my, my first major assignment was covering the war in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the six week war from September to November 2020. Last year, I spent quite a bit of time in Afghanistan covering the end of that conflict there and reporting on uh, life under the Taliban. And I came to Ukraine in January. I had a small assignment just basically on what people were were doing while there was all this talk about will there or won't there be a Russian invasion. And so I arrived, I looked up my my flights the other day on January 22nd. And I've been here more or less since, with a couple of uh, weeks in and out of country, just sort of uh, recuperating or doing some other stories. So, I mean, if you'd like, I'm happy to go through my sort of reporting history since I've been in Ukraine and what I've been doing. Oh, and trust me, there
0: will be tons of questions, I'm absolutely certain. But the thing which stands out is, of course, that having started service as a parliamentarian researcher and being on the review, analysis and what I would call the theoretical end, you took things into your hands and got some real life experience in places which are terribly dangerous and difficult. I mean, Nagorno-Karabakh, Afghanistan, that's not small fry. So you've had your fair share of war correspondent activity in live action before.
1: Yes, it would be fair to say that. Uh, interesting when you talk about the theoretical stuff. So, I mean, I would be doing, you know, quite a lot of interviews, whether they were with MPs or whether they were with generals or defense experts. Uh, you know, at one, uh, at one point I interviewed the head of the British Army. At another point I interviewed uh, Gavin Williamson, back when he was Secretary of Defense, for a, for a book project. But I kind of got uh, a little bit tired of talking to you know, all of these kind of high ranking people in posh hotels in SW one in central London. And I was like, I still don't feel like I have any idea of what it actually feels like to see these issues with my own eyes. So I decided to become a reporter and I I haven't really regretted it or missed my old life ever since I find it much more engaging and much more rewarding. And I feel I can do uh, much more, much more help when I'm actually here on the ground, because you see and hear and discover things that there simply is no substitute for.
0: Yeah, And contrary to some people who, as, um, say, media correspondents have been hovering about predominantly in Kyiv and in very safe areas, I understand that you and uh, uh, some of your colleagues and friends who have actually, some of them have been with us, such as Caleb Larson, um, actually you've seen what John Keegan wrote as the face of battle.
1: Well, I've certainly gotten gotten pretty close to to the action on a number of occasions. So I spent about three weeks in Kharkiv. Uh, I did a documentary there about uh, uh, what was going on, the life there. And at one point in that, we went out with the Ukrainian army when they were making a push to liberate to liberate some of the villages. Now, as most war as most correspondents who've been on the ground in Ukraine know it's pretty, pretty rare that you will actually get access right to the front lines, right to that face of battle that we call. But, you know, they did take us out to where there was an artillery exchange, and we basically had Ukrainian rockets flying, literally flying almost directly over our heads from about 50, from a position that we hadn't noticed about 50 metres away. We would see kind of helicopters going back and forth. And also, I was in the Donbass during the Battle of Seven. Once again, they took us right to the bridge where we could basically see all of the – the bridge between Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, right where we could see all of the explosions going on ahead of us, although they they didn't want us to go into the city, and, and we agreed into Severodonetsk, so we stayed right on that bridge. Um, but I've certainly gotten close enough to see what the war looks like, and also you get to speak to a lot of the soldiers who are there, and I found it quite interesting that the soldiers who are there will often be much less guarded with you and they'll be talk much more openly and freely than, say, I don't know, press officers back in Kiev might speak to you.
0: No, I understand this. and We've had the same kind of impression by uh, the various soldiers of different rank, from troopers all the way up to generals who've been with us, and specifically the Ukrainian ones. Uh, we recently also had, for example... Um, Uh, the unfortunate in that regard, but very stoic father of the late Roman Ratushny, Taras Ratushny, who had also, just like his son, volunteered and been serving uh, now at the front lines. Um, It takes a certain kind of people to do that, but the Ukrainians seem to accept this and seem to be, despite the fact that this is a gruesome business, be very committed, fervorous, and happy warriors. What is your impression of the ukrainian soldiers you've talked to
1: well yeah i mean one thing that really does uh, stand out uh there are a couple of things that stand out uh, of course it's 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 a bit of a cliche but it's true to say that the ukrainian soldiers we met are extremely sort of fierce extremely determined uh, to keep, you know, to, to keep, uh, Ukraine's land and it, its sovereign integrity and its, uh, territorial integrity. But one thing that I noticed as well, and this is, well, it's probably, uh, I think very much of a contrast with what we know about the Russian army that's been fighting is that this really is in many ways a whole of society effort. And the people that you meet even on the front lines seem to cross all sort of, uh, class backgrounds, cross all sort of regions of Ukraine. I mean, when we were, we spent a night um, in the sort of the, the trenches in uh, just uh, up towards the northern, uh, for, for the, whatever reason, the name of the town escapes me, but it's on the Izium front of the uh, of the Donbass of the Donetsk line. It's it's leading up towards Bavinkve that direction, or, or further north. Uh, Let's say that again. Bavinkve? Uh No, I think slightly further north. Oh, but whatever it was it was it was it was very very close you know close enough that we could see the the, the field in front of us getting absolutely smattered with uh with artillery um, and you know we noticed that there were you know some of the people we met were were had soldiers that had gone into the army some people had volunteered you know they had been uh, a couple of people one was a philosophy professor uh, there was a couple there who were both lawyers who'd been in Kiev you know uh, one of the uh, the lieutenants we met was from Lviv, another one of the guys was from Crimea, another one was from Donetsk, you know, others were from Kiev. It really did seem like it was very much uh, a sort of a cross section of society. And in some ways, it kind of reminds me a bit of the British effort in World War One. And one of the saddest things, I think, is that it is, in many cases, some of the smartest and sort of most talented and most patriotic young Ukrainians that are having their lives, you know, ripped apart both figuratively and literally by this war. It's sort of the the generation, the many that grew up with the Maidan revolution as this sort of formative political experience is kind of getting torn to pieces by Russian artillery. It's really real, real a tragedy in that sense and, and, and it can really be quite heart-wrenching to notice and what we know about for instance the Russian army is that the Russian army tends to take most of its soldiers from like to the sort of the very the, kind of the dregs of its society the sort of the very the poorest and the most backward areas not that that excuses any of the any of the atrocities that, that we've seen but it's, it's very very clear there's a big difference between the two armies. I remember, I think the saying is a polish saying actually that you know we we uh, in world war 2 that because it was sort of the flower of their youth that was sent to be killed it was we fought our enemies by shooting diamonds at them and i couldn't help feeling that that's that summed up a lot of what i saw in in donbass as well
0: it it sounds uh, terrifying always but then again this is the experience i think many armies have made in the first world war where generations of men have been lost who could have been poets scientists engineers teachers just husbands and fathers uh, at that point in time obviously overwhelmingly men uh, now when you see the ukrainian armed forces today um, with this cross-section of society and actually fighting them both the the regular army now, with all its volunteers and then the uh, territorial defense forces, they don't show their exhaustion often when they're on the phone with us, but you've seen them in combat. I've seen many photos, be it from Bryce Wilson or for, from Guillaume or the other chaps. Um, it seems that the typical toil of war wears heavily on them and they still get up and fight. How do you see them and how do you, how do you see them behaving?
1: I mean, that's, that's, that, that's completely fair enough. I think the toil of this war would take a toll on absolutely anybody who was fighting in these sort of conditions. I do remember one major that we met. I think he was from, he was from Donetsk. He'd fought, he'd first picked up a weapon in 2014 and he was about 33 and he looked his age, but except for his eyes, there was just this incredible weariness just written all over him. And I remember just kind of seeing him when we were, uh, when we were in Listerchansk and he did, I have a photo I took of him where he was just kind of sitting on the steps with his head collapsed and he looked like he was just about to collapse. Yet I have absolutely no doubt that on probably about two or three hours sleep the next night he would have gotten up and fought just as normal. Uh, now, oh, yeah, I think that's that's most of what I can say about that. But yeah, it is very true that the Ukrainian army does seem to have this incredible tenacity to it.
0: When you were there in Donbass, uh, you saw um, heavy shooting, shelling, but also small arms fire. And you uh, in a call earlier, you highlighted that you saw a car approaching to you, where evidently that car had small arms holes,
1: right? Yes, yes. So this was uh, about... This was towards the end of May. We were on the road. It was between... It was very, very close. It was just outside Solidar, actually. And this was a day where there had been a report that there'd been a big Russian push-through from Popasna that had managed to break through a Ukrainian line. And we spoke to a press officer there who was like, yeah, we think the Russians are within about four or five kilometres of Solidar. And this was... I believe the road was going from Solid. It was about halfway between Solidar and Bakhmut, Um, and yeah, we saw this kind of white van limping towards us, and you could clearly see that there were bullet holes there. And so, you know, that's that's obviously very important because it means that effectively the Russian Ukrainian armies were within small arms fire of each other at that point. When you know, according to the maps that that we'd been seeing, the Russian army was supposed to be more, you know, about uh 20, 10 20 kilometers away um and but yeah that said it's not like we actually saw, we could hear artillery fire during that period absolutely constantly we could see it um kind of going off around us but we we didn't see any actual sort of engagement between troops and small arms fire we literally just saw saw that van
0: now how could that be mistaken for something
2: else
1: well, yeah, I know, uh, I know where you're, where, where you're coming from here, but I mean, there were, you know, maybe if it had just been me, I would have, um, I could have, you know, misinterpreted it. I'm not an expert in identifying, you know, particular types of marking, but there were four of us, uh, you know, a Ukrainian driver and three journalists, and we all got exactly the same impression from this car. So I'm not sure how it could be, um, identified as anything else, particularly by people who weren't there to see it.
0: That's funny that you should say that because it, it, uh, my Latin teacher or my English teacher both would have said the same thing in school, past pro toto, meaning one part for the whole. Evidently people who are not there but can ordain what actually has happened somewhere else whilst not having seen it, they, that's not myopia, that is not even projection, that is just utterly disrespectful to the truth, is it not?
1: Yes, I think I'd agree with that.
0: There seems to be a red thread such people have when collecting data. Let's turn. You, you, you told me a little earlier. Apart from the fact that at the moment I understand you in Mykolaiv, which uh, uh, some of the best sunsh- uh, some of the best sunshine one can have. It is summer in the south of Ukraine, but at the same time. Mikolajev is constantly being shelled and attacked. Well,
1: yesterday it was actually a thunderstorm here. Yeah. There was a thunderstorm. There was, you know, about 10 o'clock at night, and we could see, uh, you know, um, it can sometimes be quite difficult to tell the difference between a peal of thunder and an artillery and an artillery round. And you know, we could see there, there were kind of lightning flashes going off all around us, and there was an air raid siren going off it. I I tweeted at the time, it looked veritably kind of apocalyptic here. And then, weirdly enough, when the thunderstorm faded, you could hear the artillery, but much further in the distance, and it was kind of a sort of a very, uh, very sort of faint peel. It almost was calming in a way compared to the thunder. But anyway...
0: No, no, the, the interesting thing is that you just highlighted one thing. There are things one can mistake in the fog of war for something else. And a thunderstorm, just like even the crackling of some fire somewhere, could be mistaken for something completely different, fully appreciated. But bullet holes for shedding, which are not there, that doesn't work. Now, that brings me to the other topic. Uh, when we discussed it earlier, and uh, one claimed to fame is that you've actually um, you've been with that meeting in and Solidarn thereafter, you've been very close to one part of history in the making because, as we understand, uh, the makers, you can't call them quite authors, but those responsible for the most recent row in international relations, and including in this case uh, the organization of Amnesty International, were there, Kramatovsk and Slovyansk, and in the region at the time when you, Caleb, and others were on location could you maybe just summarize what actually happened
1: okay ha- happy to do that so i mean if if no one if' uh, is, uh aware of of my involvement in this do read my article on byline times uh or you know online or in the recent print edition uh which summarizes what happened but basically i this was the day that we had been in solidar during that that, uh, pushback and we were staying in, there was, I believe, only one hotel that was even open in Kramatorsk. And so everybody there was a journalist or an aid worker. And of course, what happens at every time like this is that you sort of, everyone comes back and sort of sits around the dinner table and talks about everything that happened. It's, you know, it, it, it's quite bizarre because it, so, you know, it's almost as if you're having dinner in like a university halls of residence or something, except instead of talking about your lectures, you're talking about how close you got to being blown up by shelling that day. And, uh, anyway, we, we, we came back and we, and one of the people, and there was the team from, and Am- the now infamous team from Amnesty International there, uh, you know, their lead crisis researcher, Donatella Rivera, um, and a couple of uh, – lo- and some of her local staff. I don't believe they were staff from the Ukra- uh, from the Amnesty International Ukrainian office. I think they were they were uh, fixers um, uh, unrelated to them, although I can't be sure on that. And anyway, we ended up getting into a conversation about what had been going on. Now, the first thing that happened that kind of made, made us think was very weird is we said, oh, look, we've just come back from Solidar. We saw a car with bullet holes in it. She's like, oh, it, well, they weren't bullet holes, and we like – what do you mean? And she's like, um, no, they, we, we, it's mortar fire. It's mortar fire in, in, in that area. And I'm like, oh, well, where were you today? And she hadn't been there that day. She'd been in the hotel. And so I said, no, we saw it was bullet holes. And she's like, oh, well, it, it, you just can't be right. That, that, that's just wrong. And I'm like, did you see the car with your own eyes? And she's like, no, but it doesn't matter from that from that distance, it's mortar fire. And we kept on trying to it, it was very, very weird. It you know, there'd been three of us there, we'd all seen this, and we'd all we were all sure it was bullet holes. But she just kept telling us that no, our eyes were lying to us and it was mortar fire. How she knew this was completely beyond me. Anyway, we, we start getting into discussing the sort of work we've been doing, and the main bugbear of hers is the fact that she said, Look, the Ukrainians have been putting military installations in, you know, civilian populated areas now and in particular, we were talking about uh, Bakhmut here. There was uh, a language college in Bakhmut that had been basically repurposed by the Ukrainians as a military base. Now, this is sort of no no secret to anyone who's who's kind of worked in the Donbass. And it should be noted that not only is this not a secret, but it's not any kind of war crime either. This is not a college that was in session. There was, uh, the Ukrainians had repeatedly tried to evacuate this area. And there was a, basically what had happened was that there, there had been a civilian uh, apartment block that was over the road. And this had been hit, I believe, by a a missile. I haven't noted down in my notes somewhere exactly what it was, but it doesn't come to mind. And the civilian apartment block across the road had been quite badly damaged, although we actually don't think any civilians were killed in that strike. Although I think about half a dozen uh, armed forces Ukraine were... (sighs) now we she said look it's a clear violation of international human rights law you cannot put uh, military installations in a in a populated area international humanitarian law is very clear on this now as it turns out international humanitarian law is not that clear on it it's all about proportionality between your military objectives which in this case is defending the donbass from you know the russians turning it into you know, into each town there into another Mariupol, and treating the survivors as they treated the survivors in Bucha, or it's you know defending the military objective here. And anyway, we sort of had we started to get into a bit of a row. There were about I think about seven or eight of us in the room, a couple of journalists, um, a couple of sort of milit- of ex um, military. Uh, people who uh, who were working as sort of security advisors for the various teams out there. And we got into like rather big row about this topic in general. And, you know, one thing she, I remember she was saying, well, look, we when we were in Sotivka in North Kharkiv, we saw at one point, uh, what we believe was a, you know, Ukrainian artillery piece that was firing and, you know, the, the Ukrainians can't put something like that in a city. It's a breach of international human rights law. They need to have it outside the cities. And we're like, but but how are you supposed to defend a city? And she's like, it doesn't matter. Uh, International humanitarian law is clear. They can't be populated areas. I'm like, how do you defend an urban area without placing soldiers in it to defend that urban area? You said it was irrelevant. And that, you know, if, and and I, I said, look, if you come out and say this, everyone is going to be like this is this report is screwy because everyone is going to be like you need to make the you you need to make the difference between offense and defense you know you need to come up with a credible alternative for how the ukrainians could have defended their cities in this case kharkiv the second biggest city in ukraine which was being absolutely mercilessly pummeled and anyway i warned her that the reports uh, reaction to her report would be negative negative. I didn't expect it to be quite as negative, but I, I do think I was vindicated by, uh, well, for instance, one, the fact that Amnesty International today announced that they're going to bring in external lawyers to review that. So, yeah, that was my contribution to the latest controversy.
0: No, That's very good. Tom, let, me introduce I, uh, a, let, me, let me introduce you to a friend of ours and one of the co-founders of the report, Yehuda, uh, because we've dissected uh, together with his kindness and a couple of other boys already the Amnesty International report beforehand, Yehuda.
3: Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Uh, very, very insightful to listen to your experiences. Yes, we've, we've obviously referred to the whole amnesty, uh, situation and, uh, it's a little rich to talk about military perspectives. We have a lot of military experts that come on here. And, um, what's funny is that, uh, you know, no matter where you are in any city, uh, you might have a school half a kilometer away. Uh, and a normal city in Turkey probably has 15, 20 armories where once upon a time the Ukrainian army would operate out of, it, right? So it's not like they've been placed there. Um, to put people in harm's way. It's their country. They can have whatever they want, wherever they want. They didn't expect to be defending from those positions. So about the sighting of, say, you know, an artillery piece you mentioned. Um, there are times where the military requirements, the needs on the ground, will reflect and, 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 and dictate where things go. Uh, it's obviously, as you said, how can you defend the city if you're not in it? Right. Um, that was lost on on Amnesty. I do want to circle back to an accusation that's been levied, and that is there were there was testimony that Amnesty incorporated into its report that was gleaned from Ukrainian soldiers ostensibly being tortured by Russians. Is there anything that you, you shed any, you know, bring any color to that for us?
1: Yeah um i'm afraid i can't really uh add to what has been has been reported publicly about that that wasn't something that i discussed with the amnesty team and i don't know how that ended up in in, in its report so i don't really want to speculate there just cuz i don't really i, I don't have any uh, original knowledge
4: um tom uh thank you for your uh, article on amnesty i en- enjoyed that enormously um the <laughs> follow up you mentioned where Amnesty have come out and said this report will be reviewed by independent experts. In the press release that went with that follow up, Amnesty made quite some quite, some quite specific statements. And one of those statements was that none of the people, none of the people they interviewed for the report were infiltration camps, were in occupied territory or were otherwise under the control or influence of the Russian army. Do you believe this denial?
1: Um, I mean, personally, I don't think so. It would sound strange to me, but I don't have any evidence to back that up. Uh, as I said, it, I, I find it, I, I, I mean, I've made so much during this whole whole sort of uh, scandal of the fact that I was, you know, that I had first-hand witness testimony I had my I was there on the ground and I know what I saw and I know what the people I spoke to said so I, I would think it a bit rich if I came out and sort of speculated on what others have or have not done that I've not seen with my own eyes I did by the way I, I'm sorry if we uh, um, I, I actually wanted to circle back a little bit to what I was saying about the amnesty report just to add to my perspectives in is um, it was actually to do with in putting civilians in harm's way it was actually to do with evacuation And in the amnesty report said, you know, we know of no uh, um, efforts made by the Ukrainian authorities to evacuate civilians or the Ukrainian military to uh, to evacuate civilians from the areas where they took up positions. Now, this is just factually wrong. Like, this is just a clear error of fact. You know, there were evacuations going on from Donbass all the time from frontline towns constantly. You know, I was on one of those evacuation journeys. In fact, there was a journalist um, colleague of ours the, the following week after we left who was killed on one of those evacuation runs. And it's it's I don't know how they could have missed that. It seems absolutely you know unbelievable that they did, but that's there in the report. So you know if they're if they're able to be wrong and a, about such a significant and easily disproved fact. I don't know why we should take anything about what they say about the report or its compilation or its origins seriously.
4: Thank you, Tom. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but I was just wondering if you had specific information or experience about that, because frankly, I doubt these denials. Um, but uh, let's go to you. I
1: doubt them as well, but I don't want to, 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 to claim for sure. Thank you very much. Tom, when,
0: in your discussion at that dinner table with uh, Ms. Rivera, did you hear by any chance any kind of indication that she was giving due consideration to facts or did she have a precast, pre set
1: mind? <laughs> Well, it didn't, as I said, it it seemed like it wasn't just about sort of the use of facts. It seemed that she kind of made her conclusion already. And her conclusion was the Ukrainian army are putting everybody in harm's way. And it, it, uh, and when I, when I tried to sort of bring up rebuttals to this, uh, uh, one thing that I I, I saw is, was that talking to her was a bit like talking to a stone wall. You know, if you throw a tennis ball at a stone wall and it just bounces right back at you, you, is that she? It was extremely preset in every conception that she had of the situation, and would not change it. And you know, even from the very thing of being like, no, what the van you saw is mortar fire. You know, no, it was, we saw it was small arms right, No, it was mortar fire. Like, it wasn't like it didn't feel like anything you said. You would get like a response from you would almost get kind of a re, uh, just a line repeated back to you that that no sort of alternative evidence. At so no point did she say, "Oh, okay, that's an interesting perspective," or well, "Here's another perspective." She would just kind of repeat the same line back to us, which suggests to me that uh, that 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 sort of she went into this with those preconceptions in mind. And it also does strike to me that you know I, I think they gave the uh, that it doesn't seem like they worked with the Ukrainian military on, you know, either going to them and being like, look, can you please explain the military rationale for your situations? I believe they only gave them three or four days to respond properly. It also doesn't seem like they took, you know, the objections of the. So one thing I found very interesting is was that they didn't take the object, you know, she didn't take any of the objections of the Amnesty International the Ukraine branch into account in any way, which is why their director resigned over this. And that doesn't surprise me because it doesn't seem like she was willing to take any in evidence or information that was contrary to her preconceptions on board that was my experience much more importantly that was the experience of the internet of the uh, amnesty international local branch
0: typically when you go in country and when you try to ascertain facts you work with your local branch very very closely to actually find out those details which you could as a foreigner never sense no matter how well prepared you believe you are this is why you have a local team uh, the local team you didn't see at all whilst you were there and meeting
1: them in Kramatorsk and the likes. Okay, there were there were two local fixes. I don't know their names or their identities. We did speak um, briefly. I don't believe they're affiliated to the uh, Amnesty International. Uh, Ukraine team, no. But I don't. But again, and I I didn't see anybody that I that are recognisable from the Amnesty International Ukraine team. But remember, I was only there with uh, in this hotel with Miss Rivera. We only crossed over for two days. It's very possible that she worked with their team in other locations in Ukraine. But you know, if she did, I'm not aware of it. I don't think she did in Kramatorsk, uh, because otherwise, I think the, you know her team would have raised these objections much sooner.
0: Isn't that quite surprising, if you think about it, because these questions have come up in recent days, and specifically after the Washington Post article by Oksana, that uh, whilst she, in her work, could never exclude that, obviously, as as one would call, accidents do happen, but she could never exclude uh, the um, possibility that, essentially, the data on site would simply be uh, appraised very late, meaning that Amnesty International would always review ex post factum so if you look at it um, she she highlighted in an article that as she says the ukrainian government for its part has a solid I quote solid rec- record of answering to amnesty's requests now if donatella had asked had asked these questions from the ukrainian government one would have expected her to have a significant argument with the government would one not
1: Precisely. I mean, I don't
0: want, uh, exactly, yes. because as you said earlier, in, in your own capacity, when you interview generals and the likes, and analysts and whatnot, you would have gone through various parties, cross-referenced data, and then presented people with uh, your conclusions in
1: order to check as to whether they hold true, right? Yes, precisely. And it was bizarre for this reason, because it literally seemed like it had been put together by one or two people without anybody, you know, uh, uh, the, without the rest of the organization, without any you know, outside experts, without sort of the right of reply that the Ukrainian government and military should have been afforded. Like the one person who sort of just wrote in it, written it, handed it in and you know published it as if they were sort of self publishing something on their blog but this isn't something that should be self published on someone's blog this is giving this these allegations which haven't gone through the proper scrutiny or due process giving them the imprimatur of one of the leading human or perhaps we should say one of the formerly leading human rights organisations in the world that has already entirely predictably been weaponized by the Russian government to say, oh look, we only bomb targets where Ukrainian forces are stationed. And also there's, there's, there's so many other, when you go through the report line by, and I know you've gone through it line by line, when you see things like there, there are so many strange things like when she said she was in Mykolaev region in a populated area and then said she heard outgoing Ukrainian Artillery fire. Well, you've heard our going out Ukrainian artillery fire. You don't know where it was. You don't know what it was next to. If you only heard it, you know, or the fact that they, she said that they saw soldiers milling around in a hospital. So what does that mean? What if they were the local guards of the hospital? What if they were there for treatment? What if they were there for any number of reasons? It doesn't prove it was a military base. There's just so many flaws from every angle that you look at the report, factually, legally. It, it just where it, where was the scrutiny process?
4: It does seem to me that there are quite fundamental misunderstandings of the law of armed conflict, like permeating this report. You know, they they, they just and okay, LOAC is complicated, but. You'd think Amnesty would know better, right? You'd think they just know better.
1: Yes, uh, that that was an interesting point, right? Yeah. Yes, the law of armed was yes, the law of armed conflict is quite complicated, and the key. The key term in the law of armed conflict, not that I'm a lawyer of armed conflict, is proportionality about sort of basing, basing risks and basing various types of harm. But when I had the conversation with Donatella, the, the the line she kept using was, "No, international law, international humanitarian law is very clear." Well, it's not very clear, actually. It's not very clear at all. I mean, it's clear in some particular situations. So, for instance, you know, if you shoot a prisoner of war and kill them. That's clearly a violation, right? But it's not, it's nowhere near as clear cut when we're talking about, you know, military tactics and strategy like this. But she was very certain that not only was the law very clear, but that their interpretation of the law was very clear. And um,
0: yeah. very good point. And, and I think uh, my colleague Gurney, who's also joined us on the panel, we've discussed this uh, in, in the first instance on the very first day when when the report came out that. Actually, the fact that, for example, they quote that um, Ukrainian uh, soldiers were seen at a hospital. well, being seen at a hospital if you're treated or if you're an r and r or you're given soup that is not uh, that does not make the hospital a designated target per se. on the contrary, it's actually just quite legally wrong and whilst the law of armed conflict may be a complicated affair, soldiers in the west. And by the way, the Ukrainian armed forces over the past eight years, in close collaboration with, for example, some of the founders of Maria Aid and close friends of ours who've been training the Ukrainian armed forces to a Western
5: standards, have drilled this into people. Gurney, I think you have a point in that regard. Thanks, Axel. Um, Tom, very, very enlightening to to hear your description of of, of your firsthand events um, with with your experience here in the in the hotel. It sort of paints a picture to me, at least, that that there was sort of an inc- incredulous uh, type of attitude. I, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned that there were several of you uh, throughout this experience, or at different times. Could you also share, uh, without encapsulating their opinions per se, but what what you did? You said there was a row there. Did other people seem to express the same concerns you were you're, you're raising? Yes, uh, indeed they. Did. I remember
1: there was one guy uh, if my ma- he was a uh, former French Foreign Legion and he was having an argument with her he was saying yes but you don't understand wh- the, the, why there might be a military necessity of using these these locations and they had a back and forth about because the that that was the other thing is like you know, she seemed convinced that there could be no mi- military necessity to have it to having forces in an urban area which you know again like if, if you put them in a field outside a city one they might be much easier targets and two they might just be bypassed right so there was a there was a conversation about about that as well from a from a former as i said french foreign legion soldier and then there were the other two journalists that i you know full disclosure i was traveling with them and they are colleagues and friends of mine who were neil hower and caleb larson who many of you may follow already now they have backed up my version of events completely and they've um you know, posted uh, threads publicly about exactly that, about, you know, I mean, I think Neil's words and Neil is, uh, uh, has a form for this. As I said, it was a kind of level of arrogance, condescension and hubris that was absolutely staggering to behold, which I quite like the wording of.
5: And Tom, if I can is- one one last follow up for you here. Um, do, do you think, this is this is a, a, an opinion type question here, but do you think someone who works for an organization like that, and I'm taking the name out of it for a second, but do you think that someone that, that has that incredulity or, or hubris or, or, or the experience that, that you went through with this person, do you think they're qualified to, to make uh, judgments or even collect reports and disseminate reports on, on such a, a sensitive matter?
6: Well, this is, this is
1: an interesting thing when you talk about experience, is that one one fact that, you know, Donatello reminded us of several times was I have 20 years' experience working in conflict zones. You know, I've been in oh, all over the Middle East or in Africa and all these different wars, blah, 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 blah. And... It's almost sort of the opposite of not being experienced enough. It's that you've spent so much time in this field that you're just convinced that you have it right and that you're convinced that your experiences, say, in other conflicts can be transferred precisely to a new conflict where you don't understand the conditions on the ground, you don't speak the local languages, and you don't seem to want to work closely with your local teams or partners. And that was the thing. It was kind of like her experience, rather than being helpful in passing armed conflict, had just hardened her opinions, not just about conflict and international law, but in her own infallibility.
0: It's interesting that uh, uh, this uh, rather one-track mind, uh, unfortunately, has completely, utterly failed to understand how safety zones and neutralized zones are defined. And uh, the discussion has come up, and I think you've seen this also in uh, Oksana's article, yeah, opinion piece in the Washington Post, which complements what you just said, by the way, um, that she sees this as a massively lost opportunity because the Ukrainian armed forces have been exceptionally committed to be compliant with the laws of armed conflict, with the Geneva Conventions in recent months. They have made sure that, uh, for example, the initial um, hooray about those videos where the three pilots were paraded out, that things like that stopped right away because they are dependent on their integration into the Western Western weapons deliveries of course, but at the same time they also really want to uh, abide by it there is a belief in that armed forces structure that this is how you wage war which is a different culture now but the opportunity was now there for amnesty international to actually present here's our con here are our concerns we do not know as to why on what uh on what date certain soldiers were in this or that neutrality zone um, and by the way, did you infringe upon those safety zones? The Ukrainian armed forces would have had the data, the satellite data. They would have had the overall um, supporting details. They could have clarified this under applicable confidentiality to eradicate those concerns. This opportunity was lost and this then has the unintended or maybe even not unintended consequence. And that is where we're going with this <laughs> that Essentially Ukraine is painted black whilst the Russians constantly argue that they should be allowed to bomb maternity hospitals because supposedly they had been taken over as command posts, which by the way was proven wrong. So not only was the opportunity lost, but on the other hand, Russians now find more justification for their actions, and um Ukraine has difficulties convincing its allies. Uh, At least for a few hours. Fortunately, many people argue against it. How do you view this this evident bias and this seemingly precast mind on Amnesty's part?
1: yes yeah, so i think that's perfectly fair and like when we go and then here, here's the thing it is perfectly possible that as i said this is a matter of proportionality there are a large number of officers and soldiers in the ukrainian army who are very very new who have volunteered recently and it is quite possible that in certain specific cases the ukrainian officers on the ground got the balance between civilian protection and uh, a military necessity wrong that's perfectly plausible and now there's no actual case in the amnesty report itself that in any way proves this but what they tried to do is not only take you know specific incidents but they tried to p- paint it as if it was a very very widespread pattern in the Ukrainian armed forces and then potentially that, and that there was an implication which is completely false in the report that they might have even been using them as human shields um, and yeah I just uh, found it quite staggering you know they could have easily Easily, And this is the problem with someone kind of releasing the report with no outside scrutiny. You know, we all, as journalists and researchers... You know, have the potential to make mistakes, but that is usually why there is a a sort of a consultative process that your articles, that your reports go through, where your editors or your um, sort of outside experts say, "Do you really have the data to back this up?" And again, it seemed like the the author's preconceptions sort of overrode any any sort of thought of that. Now, what we kind of thought, because this is what she said to me once: "She's like, all governments will just lie to you. Your only job is to get." To the truth and i sort of felt well what they're trying to do here is they're trying to say look how impartial amnesty international is we are willing to call out the bad guys whoever they are and both sides are as bad as each other the russians do war crimes the ukrainians do war crimes look at how impartial they are rather than actually trying to get to the truth of the matter
0: absolutely understood 100 percent. yeah exactly Dolan, please dom i i'd like <laughs> you to
7: get very concrete now if you if you could this exercise by Amnesty to big themselves up and to insulate themselves from any future criticism by anyone, especially anyone from the absolute fringes of society. um, Who does this exercise by Amnesty hurt the most right now and how?
1: Well, the people it hurts the most are potential Ukrainian civilians, because what the amnesty report has done is it's given succor to Russian claims um, that, you know, that any, because the Russians now have been saying, look, any civilian building in Ukraine is, is a legitimate target of ours because we know that the Ukrainian army systematically stations its troop centers in civilian buildings. But it's the Ukrainian civilians who will suffer the most by far. Which Ukrainian civilians? Any Ukrainian civilians who remain in an area, say, for instance, in, I guess, Kharkiv is a good example because many people, it's a huge city, want to return to their hometowns. And now the Russians can effectively, you know, use the, and this is the the line that I ended my article with, the next time the Ukrainians shall, uh, sorry, the next time the Russians shall uh, populated areas in Ukraine, they can use the imprimatur of Amnesty International to say that they're actions were legitimate and so that's why i think ukrainian civilians are the most hurt by this
0: very uh, poignant um if you don't mind tom we'll go to a few questions and we'll, we'll turn back to the thread i have a, a few more questions on the laws of armed conflict later adrian and then jj
6: Hello, Tom. Thank you for uh, for being with us. Uh, well, uh, this is a subject that we talked at length. It's one of the subjects that has made me absolutely infuriated in the latest period, especially because um, I, uh, I, uh, my partner and friend, creative partner, she's a Ukrainian uh, soldier, and she's also shooting a documentary, more of a creative one, and I've. Got her footage just a little while before Ms. Rovera published her report, and I've actually seen her uh, evacuating uh, a family of civilians from Zolote. It's uh, it's in the footage. It's she meets a family, a mother who is deaf and her two daughters, and they talk. And then later in her material, they're taking them out uh, from Zolote to Bakhmut in a van. Um, and also, I've seen footage of uh, Russians shelling Ukrainian hospitals. Uh, we're not even talking about uh, leveling entire cities. This is something we all know.
8: Uh,
6: I- I'm going to be conspiratorial. Uh, and I'm sorry, I know you're a journalist and you an- analyze facts. So I'm uh, just going to go on the crazy route of it. Um, and you can choose to comment or not to. But... um to me it seems that any rational person looking at this war, and this genocidal war, would understand that the Russian uh, army is the aggressor here that if indeed there are some instances when there are and even that is debatable, there are Ukrainian military areas uh, those are there because the Russians are in that position to defend those civilians because we saw in Bucha what the alternative is if they weren't So I'm trying to understand and I'm thinking, well, for amnesty, it's a way to show this impartiality, so-called impartiality and to blame both sides. It's a way for them to uh, basically sustain their business model, to gather donations, to show a potential audience that will donate, that in any war they will be, quote unquote, impartial. Of course, this completely backfired. But um, do you see, and you can choose to answer or not, do you see a connection between the way Amnesty reports and the fact that it's an organization without accountability? Um, I mean, there's no, I guess they're governing board of directors or what's it called? That's the only thing people are accountable to in Amnesty. Because I doubt there is other entity they're accountable to. And uh, my question is, sorry, it was so long-winded, would Amnesty researchers be motivated to portray a certain message in order to push more donations and keep up their, uh, I understand, pretty big salaries? Thank you.
1: I I mean, I don't think that's too conspiratorial at all. I think it's, again, perfectly plausible. Now, what I think, as I said, is that this idea of we must be impartial, we must blame all sides, has just kind of affected the way that Amnesty International sort of operates. It's an ethos in the organization, uh, but potentially connected to to its sources of funding. Um, And, by the way, I actually wanted to go back to some of the some of what you said before about, about uh, your friend who's a soldier who was evacuating civilians, it's like, as I said, yes, we all saw that. We all saw, you know, it, it, sometimes they were officially organised evacuations. Sometimes they were literally just soldiers with a car, as it was in our case, when we drove to Lysichansk and our soldier went round. And, and, and this is the other thing as well when we talk about evacuations, is that there are sometimes when civilians will literally simply refuse to leave a, a designated evacuation area, no matter how hot or intense it is. As I said, we went to one particular school uh, that was where the basement was being used as a shelter. And, you know, the the military guys we were with, they went round and they said There were about 15, probably about 15 people, 15, 20 people there. And they said, anyone who wants to leave, get in this car now and we will drive you out. And only three of those people. Now, this was enlisted chance at the end of May very 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 hard fighting going on in the area and they evacuated the um but only three people took that opportunity to evacuate at the time um so you know if you, you're completely right in that regard as for their sources of funding i think it's very very plausible not that i could uh, ever prove it jj thanks
9: axel um Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I wanted to follow up on um, what you said with regard to who this report hurts the most, the Ukrainian civilians. There have been several reporters um, on the ground who have come to Maria Report, and one of the things almost everyone talks about is their poignant interactions with the Ukrainian people. So in terms of this report what has been the reaction from the Ukrainian civilians that you have come in contact with?
1: Yeah, very happy to, for that question. So, actually, I'll, I'll start with you when we're talking about poignant stories. One that really, really are, are sort of it blew me away it was uh, this evacuation i was talking about where they where they went around and they asked a group of civilians to evacuate uh, we took three of them two were quite elderly women one was a young woman she was 19 years old and i asked her and so i i did an interview with her and i talked to her and she was from kharkiv she lived in kharkiv and uh, she had when the war had broken out she had gone to lisa to be with her grandmother and I said, you know, why, why would you take such an, such an extraordinary risk? You know, you're, you're, a, you're a young woman that, uh, anywhere in uh, Western Ukraine or Europe is open to you. You can go anywhere you want. And she said, well, you know, both my parents died at a young age. My grandmother raised me. She's all I have left and I will kind of stick with her till the end. And she stuck it out with her grandmother in, you know, under a building uh, in, you know, in a basement for, Two or three months under absolutely terrible conditions of warfare, you know, and, and kind of wouldn't leave her grandmother, even though she could have at any point chosen to go to safety until her grandmother was, was ready to leave. Now, I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the, the report that I've had for the, the reactions that I've had from sort of Ukrainian civilians, they're, you know, the absolutely aghast and 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 really really angry about this because they know that the Ukrainian armed forces are the only thing standing between them and sort of the destruction of most of Ukraine if the, if the Russians could get away with it so you know that's why the Ukrainian army has you know 90 to 95% approval ratings throughout the country because that's what the Ukrainian civilians say we don't think the army is putting us in danger it's the Russians that are putting us in danger and the army is the only thing standing between us and and, and the whole country turning out like Bucha or Herzog.
0: I'm just wondering how people such as Miss Rivera and her ilk, sorry, her friends, her, whatever, her troop believe that they can go on with an operation like this. This is the single largest battle between good and evil. Sorry, but it is. Between the free world, and a willing force-on-force conflict risking authoritarian government since the Second World War. It is the single biggest force-on-force conflict we can currently imagine. And we see a genocide. And the organization which prides itself on helping the oppressed those who are in the middle those who are suffering as a consequence of war being waged by authoritarian governments or by being in the mills uh, between the millstones of different projects of say world power and domination that specific organization fails on the facts not even on the interpretation, it fails on the facts and then the interpretations, and then has the chutzpah to yet again project evil upon those who defend themselves. I think this yeah. is the it is the self-liquidation yeah. of Amnesty International and it itself disenfranchising itself from its donor base. <laughs>
1: well i mean yes but entirely and one and when you say part, i think that the the most obvious example of that was when you know amnesty secretary general tweeted out that you know ukrainian mobs and trollers were attacking them for their report it's because in in, in the organization senior leadership's mind there is amnesty is the impartial organization that is infallible and all criticisms. Uh, de facto, by trolls and mobs, because who else would criticize Amnesty International, such a perfectly impartial organization, despite the kind of what, what we've now revealed, um, you know, has re- been revealed to be an extremely sort of shoddy process that, uh, that it operates by. You know, Tom, uh, we're talking,
3: uh, it's, it's interesting for some of us, oh, uh, CH me there, Axel, please. Um, when it comes to uh, I wanted to ask, I had to drop off earlier, sorry about that. Uh, one of my questions was about what the interplay between the different Amnesty International subgroups are, um, what you saw or heard, or uh, how, how, how marginalised was Amnesty Ukraine? Um, uh, as much as they say, obviously this, the head of it resigned. Can can you speak to anything about that? Uh,
1: once again, are they my... my... Interactions of Amnesty International over this were were restricted to those couple of days in Donbass. I, you know, uh, I don't know the Amnesty U- Ukraine team in anything more than passing. I have absolutely no reason to disbelieve what, uh, what they said in their resignation letters what the head said in her resignation letter. And, and but the reason I say that is simply because her, her, when i read her letter i'm like yes exactly that mirrors my experiences exactly the fact that as i said uh, you know she felt like she couldn't make any sort of impact on amnesty's conclusions and you know neither could we when in our discussions with them make any impact on their conclusions
3: do you think this is okay so amnesty international a lot of people don't know didn't begin as a human rights uh monitor right it, it began as a uh, as a it would speak out for prisoners of conscience around the world and it somehow morphed into something a little different um and and I, I think a lot of people are starting to raise those questions are they really well suited for this task i mean the people that um you know uh, staff the organization uh there have been accusations you know for example of extreme bias towards other countries in particular uh you only have to look as far as the middle east and uh, uh i just wonder if if any if any of that colors their perspective i know it's a, i don't want to sound conspiratorial but um the russian for example the russian foreign ministry released a, a tweet uh um Slamming the Europeans and the West for daring to consider a visa ban on Russians. And, and they said, and it was quite shocking. So they, they actually, this was their post. I'll paraphrase it. They want to ban, um, they want to ban the uh, Russia uh, tourist, they want to ban visas for Russians. This is perfect example of uh, racism and fascism and Nazism. And then it said the following comma. And you keep asking us how a Jewish president of Ukraine could do could be a Nazi? Wow, what an insane like the, the A to B to Z. It was the craziest thing. Now, is there is there uh, the same people who who tout this type
4: of uh, rhetoric in the Middle East?
0: Yehuda. Okay, uh, I'll reset him. So, apologies, Tom, but th- these are some of the um, intricacies and beauties of Twitter, which we have to contend with from time to time. So, if you give us a second, we'll have Yuda right back with us. Can you hear me now? Perfect.
3: Yes, I couldn't hear Tom's answer. I don't know where I got caught off. I guess what I'm asking is that, you know, people look at Amnesty International's um, track record in the Middle East, where uh, arguably there are plenty of other countries with a worse, say, uh, uh, human rights record than Israel, but yet it's the focal point of it, and it can seem to do no right, even when it's faced with a, you know, a literal terrorist-led government, Gaza, um, and they're often hundred percent on the the receiving side and a lot of people see similarities with ukraine uh that's where they feel amnesty is going that uh ukraine can do no right uh does this is is this is this a common thread i mean we're seeing it a lot more and you know you have the the weirdos and the extremists anti-semites on both sides of the divide um who generally you know you know use the same tropes against Zelensky as they do against israel uh, is there, is there, is there a relationship? Like, uh, uh, Ukraine gets, uh, attacked for, for defending its cities from within its cities. Um, it's not the same conflict, obviously. There's a complete different, uh, parody in, in the Middle East. But, um, that's, I want to know if you could, if you would speak to that or if that is a bridge too far is what I said before I got cut off.
1: Um, again, something that, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying that these comparisons are wrong. I'm a bit loath to speak directly to the situation in the Middle East, particularly with Israel and Palestine, simply because I've never covered it. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a con, there's so many sort of thorny issues there and I haven't anything more than an amateur's knowledge and I have never covered it on the ground. So I'd be. I I can't necessarily endorse that parallel just because it's. I don't know enough about the situation and I would need to do my own reporting on the ground, which I would absolutely love to do, just haven't been able to recently. Um, But, yes, so, again, one quote that kept on coming back to me just because of its absolute absurdity was when Noam Chomsky, of all people, said it's literally impossible for, you know, people in the West to discover or learn anything about the Russian point of view on this issue. It's absolutely ludicrous. And when you do look into the Russian point of view on these issues, it is things like this where a tourist visa ban is compared to Nazism or where, you know, the the Ukrainian wish to have its own sort of sovereign nation is compared to Nazism. It is just kind of these absolutely outrageously ludicrous claims that can't seem to me to come from any sort of rational mind or from within anywhere within their own echo chambers, really.
3: Now, fair enough. So the problem is that, that whether Amnesty intended for it or not, the report adds fuel to that fire, right? It's
1: uh, yes, credence. Yes. yes, yes. I also want to say, look, I know it's not popular at all to defend the Amnesty International at this point, but it, it, they have done reports, you know, criticizing Russian war crimes as well. Like, it needs to be pointed out, not everything that they have said has been something like pro-Russia or pro-Ukraine. They have, and there have been other researchers from Amnesty International, including from their local branch, that have pointed out Russian war crimes. It just happened so that in this report, that it just they got completely the wrong end of the stick and really did add fuel to the fire of Russian claims.
3: Right, and, and just to be clear, though, and fair, um, if, if in a Ukrainian... You know, the Ukrainians cited a position in a city of protected citizen. Uh, there's no point is it even remotely close to Russian soldiers raping eight-year-old girls and cutting the genitals off of uh, wounded soldiers, right? So they should be getting the lion's share. In fact, it should be almost 100% to zero, right? And that's the problem
1: yeah precisely there is like, absolutely no comparison with you know ukrainian soldiers not drawing the proportionality uh, of, of military necessities versus civilian protection with yeah kind of mass execution and, and um sexual violence that has occurred in areas that the russians have occupied there's just no there's no moral comparison in the slightest yeah
3: no it's crazy uh did you want to grab a few questions from the audience Tom?
1: Uh, absolutely sure.
3: Okay, let's <laughs> go. Who is next?
0: Uh, I like Wendy has been waiting a little while, and Carl as well. So,
10: thanks, Axel. Thanks, Yehuda. Um, thank you for this space and having having Tom on. Uh, I have a comment and a question. Uh, it is a, it is a question which might have already been answered before I hopped onto this excellent segment. A feature of this Russian invasion of Ukraine has been the systemic deportation of by the Russians own figures, 3 million innocent Ukrainians into Russian captivity. The places of detention Russia has transported these Ukrainians uh, to have been termed filtration camps. On the Amnesty website, this organization asks for donations using stories such as a Zimbabwean woman whose quote, phone call from Amnesty saved me from rape in prison by the Zimbabwean police. On the Amnesty Twitter page, a simple search for filtration camps demonstrates that they have made no comment or statement whatsoever on this war crime. So why has Amnesty purposefully done nothing on this war crime of three million deported innocent Ukrainians? And would you say that by their silence they are complicit? I mean, I can't answer why Ukrainian, why... Uh, Amnesty
1: has made no comment on what you correctly point out as one of the, the sort of gravest crimes. Um, I actually think, you know, that, that, sadly enough, one of the other gravest crimes that has been committed in the occupied territories is not just the filtration camps, but the mass mobilization of young men in the Donbass regions where they have effectively, where the Russians have effectively rounded them up and forced them to the front line as part of, you know, the so-called, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk people's you know, and that kind of forced Ukrainians at gunpoint to fight their war for them, which I think is, you know, equally atrocious. But yeah, you're completely right but, you know, uh, Amnesty has a uh, and, this you know, Amnesty's original thing, sure, it was about prisoners of conscience, but it was about people who were suffering these sort of outrageous human rights abuses and that were effectively being imprisoned or <laughs> deported by authoritarian governments. This seems like a an issue that should be Perfectly within their closer to their original remit. Why are they not looking into it? It's a very good question. is a follow up. There, I
5: like
10: one Um, it's thank you, Yehuda. It's um, it it's just strange that um Amnesty has had access to prisoners of conscience um and prisons themselves in the past I I believe they went to visit Nelson Mandela on Robben Island Um, so uh, why I mean why why no public statement whatsoever on um, a war crime which has been rather well documented and has clearly been happening Um, why are they silent on this particular war crime Um, so thank you
1: yeah, it's it's a completely fair enough question. Why have they been silent? I don't know. And it's also it's not like a, once again it's it's both a very very well documented issue. It's also an issue that you know it's not particularly hard to get information from because you know some there have been a number of Ukrainians that have been deported to Russia, who have managed to find their way out, whether it's over the borders with Georgia or Estonia or Finland or, or wherever, where they can effectively, you know, where they can leave if they have the sort of the transportation means to do so. So it's not like it's an issue that particularly that is particularly difficult. For instance, I happen to know people that I've spoken to myself but, um, from Kherson were moved into Russia and managed to escape via Georgia. So this is an issue that they have, you know, perfect access to, uh, people that have, that have been through this particular crime, why they haven't interviewed them or haven't made a report about it when it's right up their rally, uh, up their alley and in their, within their remit is beyond me. But it seems far more within their remit than the specific positioning or, and within their expertise than the specific positionings of the Ukrainian military when it's defending its front lines and its cities. Yeah, no,
3: Tom, that's exactly, so, so in a nutshell, I think that's where people are going with a lot of these comments. It's, um, you know, uh, they have a specialty, uh, yet they're out of their wheelhouse. Uh, they do not have the military experts. They don't have the international, uh, you know, conflict lawyers, those who study war in a legal sense. Yeah, they went out and did this. Um,
1: the, the, the actually, of- actually, if I, if, if I can start the Absolutely. thing is they actually, they actually do, they actually do have people like that on their staff or within their very, very, very – or people that would be very, very easy for them to contact? Do you think there would be any sort of human human rights professor or lawyer in the world who Amnesty International called up and said, hi, we want your opinion on a contentious report we're about to run? They do have access to all of these people, and they chose not to speak to these people
3: that's, yeah, that was my point. So they they the have community access, community. they just don't. Yeah, that's what I meant. I mean, the point is they didn't utilize the resources that would be available to them. And the low hanging fruit, such as, you know, prisoners of conscience, they've not even touched. Um, there is kind of an, I think, a very. <clears throat> Uh, deep uh there's a belief that a lot of people hold that that the people who, who make up amnesty the, the the stakeholders might very well look at it in the Chomskyan uh, point of view that this was nato's fault and the west uh, aggravating russia and i think i think they picked a side in a way that's what i'm trying to say uh and that's the, that's just kind of the vibe that we get from our audience uh, i just wanted to throw that at you and then we'll go over to carl
1: well, speaking of, um, speaking of, of what you're saying is that the one thing that I found very, very interesting was when I was writing my account of what happened and I sort of checked Twitter and I saw a, that, uh, trailer for the CB, for that extremely strange CBS documentary where they quoted one particular volunteer as, oh, from a couple of months ago as saying, oh, well, you know, we only think 30% of the humanitarian aid we get makes it to the front line and then they had miss rivera on as a guest as an expert witness saying yes it's true we don't know where any of these weapons have gone they could have gone anywhere now one the ukrainian uh you know the united states united kingdom and ukrainian military do not share with amnesty international the logistics chain of weapons going to the ukrainian front lines it's one of the most closely guarded military secrets in the world. And two, this is literally echoing Russian propaganda very, very closely of why we shouldn't send weapons to Ukraine. This is what the Russian government's line is, you know, that one, these weapons are going to be useless or two, that these weapons are going to fall into the hand of criminal gangs and there's no way to trace them or whatever. And here she is as an amnesty researcher coming on and backing that line up in full. And the sort of the reaction to that was so bad, uh, both from, the, from internationally and from the Ukrainians that had put, participated in that documentary, they actually had to withdraw that trailer and said, actually, no, we've got to go back and recut this documentary because we've gotten it wrong. So if this was a one-off incident where uh, she had just gotten it wrong on this particular aspect of, um, you know, Ukrainian, of the actions of the Ukrainian armed forces, perhaps you can overlook something like that once. But this what, second appearance suggested to me that she had a specific agenda. And it was yes. just really strange that agenda had to happen to line up with much of the Russian narrative.
3: No, 100%. And that's where we're going. So it's like once, could be an accident, two or three times there's a pattern. Um, and <clears throat> that's one of the one things that you know got a lot of our ears perked right we were like wait a minute because that is russian for tom. like you know they're, they're selling it on ebay that's actually what the russians say every day that Heimars are being sold on ebay the strangest thing i've ever heard um yeah let's go to carl for a question for tom
11: uh, hi there fellow kiwi um yeah, when I listened to your um, talking about your interactions with this research, amnesty researcher and uh, just kind of how there was this disconnect from reality, right? She didn't listen to anything uh, that, that you would say or even things that were obvious in front of your eyes, whether the the, the holes were bullet holes or mortar holes, and just, you know, kept on repeating uh, the, the same rhetoric over and over. It just reminds me of an <clears throat> Upton Sinclair quote that says, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And uh, I just don't know, you know, is this, is there something more sinister uh, going on or is it just some sort of ideological uh, rigidity that kind of just played out in a certain direction that uh, put the blinders on?
10: I mean,
1: to me, it suggests ideological rigidity. Uh, and I think the sort of the, the Agnes Calamard tweet about mobs and trolls, it was just kind of this mindset that, yes, they are right the whole time, because I would have thought that, you know, this was – and that was so obviously stupid, and they, I, I hope at least, have lost quite a lot of money and quite a lot of donations over this very issue. its uh, I, It suggests to me that it's more ideological than, than monetary factors. So that, that once again, you know, I'm, sometimes it seems like I'm thought of as sort of an expert on Amnesty International when I most certainly am not Um, but I can't so I don't know enough about their funding trails or anything like that to speculate that there were darker motives involved so it's certainly an issue worth looking into
0: well one could be very sardonic in in saying as a conclusion that essentially Amnesty International is fighting for its life because if the authoritarian part of Mordor is being fought off now There will be much fewer sources for other terrorist states where Amnesty International then has to save prisoners and protect civilians. In that regard, maybe there's just an institutional motive. But then again, I would never go that far. That would be unfair, would it not? JJ.
9: Thanks, Axel. I wanted to actually ask Tom about some of his other reporting. So I'm not sure if you'd like me to defer to Tim or do that now.
1: I I wouldn't mind asking some questions on my other (laughs) reporting, actually, yes.
9: Okay, fantastic. Um, I asked this question um, a couple weeks ago of uh, another wonderful um, reporter that was here. Um, And it's, uh, what types of stories are you being asked to work on? And what types of stories would you like to be working on right now?
1: So, I'm actually quite lucky, uh, both as a freelancer and both uh, with my clients that I, I do have, that I'm very, very free to choose my own topics and my own stories. Uh, what I prefer, uh, and a lot of it just comes down to personal preference, one one thing I'm getting, we're getting a lot of requests for, us. we're getting a lot of uh, sort of stories of resilience, how um, people are coping with rebuilding their lives, how refugees that are coming back are uh, sort of rebuilding their lives what's it like for people who are coming back now what I would be very interested to work uh, more on actually is I'm very very interested to know about more about what's going on in the occupied territories that's that's what I think is 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 really really going to be crucially important going forward is to what tactics the Russians will use to sort of keep those populations you know had to, to keep the a foot on the throat of those populations more than anything um uh, i mean for instance uh, what right now i happen to be working on a story about you know what what the what the, about the military situation down in the south in mykolaiv and what the potential for uh retaking Kherson oblast is within the next few months um and i'm also of course very interested to go back to the donbass and see from my own eyes how things have changed you know have the, the sort of the western weapon systems that have been promised um you know and delivered in many cases. Have they managed to stop the Russian advance or does it look as bad on the ground there now as it was when I was there in May? Um, But yes, I'm quite lucky that uh, because this is a topic where there is still quite a lot of interest in, I'm relatively free to choose my own topics and my own interests.
0: How did your project go today?
1: How did my... Pardon?
0: Uh, We had a call earlier today and then you said you would be off uh, to go for another project uh and then in the coming days be in the region of Mykolaiv and looking at Kherson
1: Oh yes, so, uh, I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, just, a, it was a fairly ordinary reporting day where, where we've just been speaking to people. So the, the, the project specifically, we're hopefully will be out next week, will be sort of, you know, it's, it's a number of young people who stayed in Nikolayev the whole time, whether it was to volunteer or to support their family members, you know, what's it been like living under sort of six months of Russian bombardment non-stop? How have you been able to keep living your sort of normal lives? And then we kind of want, uh, um, on, Thursday and Friday, we'll be going out to some of the villages closer to the front lines, uh, you, you know, both to the civilian areas and to the military bases to ask people there about sort of how their lives have been going
0: Obviously, that will be very much of interest to us, and um, as we said earlier today, if there's a chance that uh, when you return, that, uh, maybe on the weekend or whenever it's convenient, we could talk about this, because there's a sincere interest both in the experience of the people under indirect fire bombardment as well, as those who are now closer to the line of contact. Some of them have actually escaped uh, occupation so... The project topic that you just highlighted. I think we have one more question from our colleague, Imperius Garthman, and then maybe we can jump back to that.
12: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my
3: question was actually off the back of uh, that CBS documentary you mentioned because the reason uh, it had to be retracted was because the aid worker that uh, was interviewed uh, saying, you know, uh, we don't know where the aid is going was actually uh, discussing aid in terms of uh, the wider work done by international organizations and the like, and and sort of trying to highlight the inefficiency of some of the larger organizations in actually helping Ukrainians. So I was wondering if uh, you had any other, had s- sort of s- had come across a similar sort of uh, slanted reporting um, in, in that vein.
1: So, uh, I think the problem with the CBS documentary more than anything is that it, there can sometimes be a problem where when journalists get like one what we think is the money quote which they seem to in that regard, they just use that to describe their entire reporting and then their and then their reporting sometimes becomes slanted around that one particular quote which might be taken in this case well out of context or to refer to something that you know they that they didn't understand what it was referring to, which it was in this case there is It's also, you know, this is the case that sort of back in March and April – um, there was a lot of problems with, um, with the delivery of aid and the logistics supplies of weapons and stuff like that. It was a bit chaotic. It was very ad hoc. A lot of the organizations were sort of grassroots Ukrainians or volunteer foreigners who were coming and A lot of the big aid organizations had actually a very, very limited presence on the ground and surprisingly still do. I mean, uh, that's, by the way, another topic that I'm interested in, in reporting as to, you know, where a lot of the, these big aid organizations have gone. Um, I can't think, uh, unfortunately, off the top of my head uh, of any other examples of slanted reporting like that. However, you know, having worked in news organizations, I can very clearly see how that's come about. They found what they thought is the big scoop or the money quote, and they have decided to run with it as the sort of lead advertisement for their work without actually going through and sort of soberly checking the facts and being like, "Ah, this doesn't actually mean what we thought it would mean or what would be the most dramatic for it to mean.
3: Thanks, Tom. Tom, Ivan, can we get a commitment from you if you do go into the occupied territories there? Or, um, if you get a chance. That would be difficult. Uh, as a reporter, I'm sure the Russians are welcoming report. I'm just kidding. Uh, they're probably not. But, um, if you do get a chance to interview a Russian official, would you ask them, uh, this one question? I'm um, sure. Just if you could just say what air defense doing,
1: just with the incomplete grammar, would that be something you would do? I'd be happy uh, to do that. Although I haven't interviewed a Russian official in a long time, I've I've interviewed one Russian official in my life. It was the the uh, Alexander Yakovenko back when he was ambassador to Britain. And that's a story for another day. No, that would love I'd be happy, happy to ask anything like that.
3: Well, you, you've you've seen you've seen the comments, right? What air defense Oh, cool, it's, uh, oh, by, cool. Right? Just for our audience, uh, I've recently got into it, so I think it's uh, it's hilarious. Um, okay, uh, let's go uh, full house here. A lot of people are coming coming up to talk. We have a Chomsky fan apparently. I wouldn't mind hearing what he had to say to you, uh,
1: or maybe not, Tom. I don't want to bother. No, you. no, 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 no. Uh, I'd be very happy to hear what a Chomsky fan had to say to me. Yes. if someone wants to defend Chomsky's comments on this, I'd be happy oh, to, uh-huh. to, to engage with him on this.
3: Hundred percent. All right. He's. Uh, let's go, uh, Tim. Just wait out one. Let's go to uh, retired vet. Uh, yeah. You have you have a comment? Did you say Chomsky? Yeah. I was going to comment.
13: Yeah. On, but did you did you mention Chomsky, whom
3: I admire? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, we're not all perfect, right? So what's your what's your element? Let's go.
13: No, okay. So real quick, uh I was gonna say that um our, our asked the question. Uh my when I've been following this war, it looks like uh, NATO is pretty much overpowering uh Russia. Okay. You know, they have more advanced system or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah.
3: So uh Let- Let's just because uh, Tom's time is limited, so no, I, you... I, I
1: I would I, I wanna hear I wanna hear this question. I,
3: oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I want him to answer. Yeah, but in relation to what Chomsky's position is on the war, I think Tom would love to hear it. Please go ahead, unmute your mic there.
13: Yeah, I was just basically asking, uh we have the more uh Power, uh, exe- uh, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, militarily, uh, diplom- diplomatically, we have more power, right? The West. Uh, my question is, when when I began to watch what happened in Ukraine, uh, I followed some generals on here on uh, Twitter, and they uh, claimed that they were so way outmatched by NATO, okay? My question is, real quick, is do you think that we, NATO, is slow walking this, uh, sort of letting Russia bleed out, right? Unfortunately, those are these human beings we're talking about, young men, uh, bleed out to the point to where uh, they may take uh, Putin out. There may be some kind of thing like that. Thank you. Uh,
1: I understand where, where, where this question is coming from completely. No, it's not my view, but I have heard it from people that, that uh, I can't name that you would, would wouldn't hear, expect to hear that from, including Ukrainians who uh, who have been uh, in some cases sort of uh, worried about the slow pace of weapons delivery. I think like one Ukrainian soldier was said to me, you know, we get just kind of enough weapons to keep us in the fight, but not enough to necessarily win this war. Uh, no, I think that a lot of the, most of the problems come from the fact that one, the logistics chain is very, very hard to do when the Russians want to target them. Uh, two, it's it's not just a shortage of weaponry per se, but it's actually a shortage of ammunition. You know, countries don't necessarily want to give all of these weapons and all of this ammunition and gut their own, gut their own existing capabilities. However, as I said, I have heard it from Ukrainians that they worry that the, that these weapons deliveries are being slow walked. It's not my view. But it's, I think it's a its a reasonable discussion to be had, and I can understand the other point of view.
3: I, I think as well, coming from the Chomsky world there, that the individual was referring to, and you he, he heard it in his voice, he said NATO was doing this. NATO's not doing anything. NATO didn't attack Ukraine. NATO didn't make Ukraine defend itself, right? So theres uh, we always want to be careful about some of those comments, right? Because at the end of the day, if you want to, you know, Chomsky and all those types make this look like this was a preplanned war by NATO to... Dra- to drain not ukrainians but to drain russia and that's just uh, a silly conspiracy because putin still invaded ukraine um the ukrainians just impressed the world by not dying right
1: uh, well, I I mean, I, one thing I've never understood about the sort of oh, but NATO encroached to Russia's borders or whatever. Well, there's a number of problems I have with the argument, starting from the fact that you know what how, with NATO expansion should be a matter between NATO and the countries that wish to be part of NATO. Should it have nothing to do with Russia. It was two was the fact that well, okay, NATO expanded to the Baltics and then never brought any other countries uh, on Russia's border in until Finland and Sweden joined simply because of the war in Ukraine. You know, NATO was not encroaching further since 2008. You know, they, when NATO declined to give Ukraine a membership ac- action plan in 2008 in, in exchange for an airy-fairy promise of, yeah, maybe one day we'll let you in. Well, uh, NATO never proved any more of a threat to Russia after that particular period. However, Russia proved much more of a threat to its neighbors. Invasion of Georgia, the annexation of Crimea, and the flaring up of the war in the Donbass. So, yeah, that's that, that. That's my perspective on the sort of the it's all the fault of NATO engagement, uh, in NATO enlargement.
3: Yeah, no thanks, and that's that's exactly what uh, Mister Chomsky advocates as well. I uh, can't stand the man myself. Uh, Tim,
7: or Tim or Doman was up. Yep, I, I, I just I want to make a comment. very minor point, if I may. Um, Russia itself likewise realizes that it's not in the slightest threatened by NATO, or they wouldn't empty their garrisons in Psko and Kaminka and everywhere else on actual <laughs> NATO borders. Sorry,
1: Tim. Thank,
4: so thank you so very much. This has been uh, one of the most engaging and interesting conversations I've heard on here. Uh, so thank you so much. I have one last question, returning briefly to your favorite topic, Amnesty Amnesty International. Do you feel that Amnesty International has been politically compromised on an institutional level at this point or do you believe this was just one fuck up
1: Um again not having been an expert on Amnesty International it's it's difficult to say on this topic Look 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 I would be willing to go back to, and and you know in the future if they release a report on I don't know taking a conflict at random. The Tigray war in Ethiopia. I would be willing to read an amnesty report with an open mind and say, okay, have they done the proper research? But I would be, I would never see the conclusions of an amnesty report again and be, and and believe them. I would have to, you know, know something about it myself or go deeply into the, into the research, the report. But I would be willing to read reports specifically by other researchers with an open mind. However, as I said, it did very much worry me that the organization secretary General's first instinct was to dismiss this completely out of hand, which does suggest that this is an institutional problem and not, and the idea, you know, put it this way, the idea that this was a one-off fuck up didn't seem to cross the Secretary General's mind, right? Her, her belief seemed to be that her institution was infallible, which speaks to it being more of an institutional problem than, than, than a one-off
12: all right i guess we have katie ah <laughs> uh, yeah hello uh hello from finland uh, uh yes yeah, so th- this uh, kind of question about the the whole question about these soldiers uh uh being in middle of the civilians for us Finns is a little bit uh strange uh uh at least for me i I I never never did military service uh, I I did uh, my 13 months uh, in the in the non-military service uh, due to personal reasons but uh, but all my friends have gone to the military and and um and I have a lot of um good memories about Ukraine that um uh, I I did back uh, 2015 a uh, fairly large uh, project with uh, some Ukrainian coders and I really, really uh, enjoyed the experience, and ever since have tried to try to uh, make another project with them. But uh, unfortunately, that hasn't uh, appeared. But I had a chance to visit the guys uh, twice. Once in Kharkiv uh, in the winter, watching all the Ukrainians slip around, and uh, and then other day, other in the uh, later in May in Odessa and. And I'm I'm thinking about those guys and 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 uh, they were fairly young guys and I do, I don't know if they are, I I didn't keep in touch unfortunately I don't know if they're serving in the military at the moment, but uh, when when we are talking about soldiers we have to remember that these these guys are, are our our sons our brothers our our friends they are not not just soldiers.
7: Did we lose Callie there? Did
8: yes, we Callie... did. Yeah. Um,
7: let's steer back to. Let's steer straight to Carolyn before she loses all yeah, the go ahead, yeah. Carolyn. We lost you, the other fella. Go ahead,
8: Carolyn. Hi there. Thank you. Sorry, we lost you, um, Carl. There. Hi, Tom. Um, thanks very much for accepting the invite to come to Maria Report. I, I am. I certainly find it. Absolutely insightful, and your your commitment to you know authenticity and and uh, fact is well received here. Um I had a a, a query around. Um, you mentioned that you know you're quite lucky. You have some freedom to report on what what you would like to pursue, or or get themes emerging. To to what extent do you experience any editorial lines that you? perhaps can 't cross, for example we 've had people mention in the past that um, genocide and explicitly calling out genocide is something that they found pushback on do you, Do you have any experience with that happening with any reporting that you 're doing or any any pushback to any extent from from clients?
1: I I don't – I haven't, actually. I've been, um, you know, fairly – okay. But one thing, I'm not going to work for a client if they come and they tell me to push an ideological line. That's just, you know, not uh, – I'm kind of not a paid a paid copywriter. I'm I'm a journalist. But, no, I haven't had very much pushback from any of the major clients that I've written for to tow a particular line. I've called um, – you know, I've used the word genocide and then – I don't think in many, but in probably two articles, and I haven't had any pushback on it. The only thing I've had pushback on is, you know, particular interpretations of, like, okay, can you justify exactly what happened here? Or maybe do you have, like, specific evidence of what happened here, you know, whether that's photographic or, 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 or witness testimony evidence. But I haven't felt ideological pressure to to follow a certain line, no. Excellent. All right, let's go to Gurney.
5: Tom, um, I wanted to ask you a, a future-looking question, and I realize that that might be dangerous both to ask a reporter that, and especially a reporter in a war zone. So I'll, I'll keep it very um, succinct here. Um, in, in general terms, um, are there some subjects you're looking forward to having the ability to cover? Um, whether whether that's you know subject areas, or uh, it doesn't mean you know locations. I just mean are there are there any opportunities you're looking forward if you had the opportunity uh, to capture, to document, to report on, and what they might be.
1: Uh, I think yeah, I brought this up earlier in the earlier in the, the episode, I'd be very interested to know more about what's going on in the sort of the uh, Russian-occupied territories. In fact, I'd be very, very interested to speak to the people who have managed to escape those areas, and I'd really, really like to do a proper proper story on that. I think all reporters in a war zone, we always want to try and get closer to, as close to the, well, not everyone, but many reporters, uh, particularly the ones of my mind, we want to get as close to the sort of the military fighting and know a little bit more more about that as much as possible. One thing I've, uh, I mentioned earlier is I'm not saying that they're not here, but we often have from the very start seen sort of a paucity of the big aid organizations on the ground, especially the closer you go to the front lines. I don't really want to name any names, but say for, for the first weeks of the conflict, when I was mostly in either Kiev or Western Ukraine, we barely saw any of them. And a lot of it was being done by ad hoc groups of volunteers or local Ukrainian organizations. I'd very much like to know. Not just where those aid organisations were, but you know, of the millions and millions and millions of dollars that were raised, where a lot of that money went. Um, and to be perfectly honest, if anybody has any particular topics that they should think should be followed up in more detail, be very happy and interested to hear it. In,
0: In we did indeed, sorry, Johnny, just very briefly before you go into the follow-up. Tom, we did indeed have um, at least one group already on our podcast stream here, uh, a family which fled out of Kherson. We also had a soldier who actually got his family and a boy who unfortunately is an orphan now, uh, but he is being adopted by that family who got him out, <coughs> out of Mariupol because the boy and his mother were in the theater in Mariupol when it got bombed and uh, the soldier while still in shock returned to the front line yet again both he as well as the family which escaped from Kherson brought us quite some horrifying but also very sobering stories so if you want we may be able to actually build a bridge and you might wish to follow up with an interview in that regard as well Gurney
5: yeah, Tom, I was just going to ask, uh, um, have, have you had any unexpected uh, moments or, or wanderings into moments of, of either levity or clarity? Um, and, and if so, would you mind sharing them?
1: Um, do you mind giving a little more detail on, on just just, what you mean? Just
5: a- anything that sort of bucks the trend of what you've expected to encounter in Ukraine, in Ukraine if you've had any moments where, where something was surprising or something was um, was unexpected to you
1: um i mean it's so there's, there's i guess just one particular incident that comes to mind it's uh it was when i was um so my first encounter with sort of uh how rigorous the ukrainians can be doing their jobs let's just put it that way it was when i was in um Dnipro in it was about late march so very you know pretty close to the start of the war we just come back from Kharkiv, me and my colleague and we had annoyingly enough the key for a bit for our building an apartment block because a friend of mine's apartment block hadn't uh it didn't work so we had to buzz the neighbors to let us in they got very very suspicious of us about 10 15 minutes later door gets front door gets kicked down i swear you not it looks like a police movie we have four ukrainian um police officers st- Charge into our building, guns drawn, pointed at us, you know, just out of a cop movie, get on the ground, get on the ground. Do you have any weapons? Who are you here with? Da 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 da. da. That was a moment when I, because at that point it was actually the first time we kind of come into contact with that sort of thing. This was one of the moments where I was like, wow, they're taking this sort of stuff really fucking seriously now. Now thankfully they looked through all our documents and then they found that we were journalists and sort of gave us a bit of a talking to. Um, but then, you know, the, we, they they cleared everything up with their office. But that's just a moment that, for whatever reason, uh, popped out at me when you when you mentioned uh, clarity or levity. Yeah. Amazing,
3: Bernie. Uh, would you say that the uh, that when you when it comes to reporting, actually, that's an interesting question you bring up. Um, is there a good command and control in terms of? how reporters are being treated in Ukraine, and they've established the mechanisms in which to verify you pretty quickly? Because obviously there are huge concerns of Russian collaborators and spies, and, and a reporter would be the perfect cover for a spy, would it not?
1: It would be. I mean, it does seem like there are... So I don't know what procedures... Is specifically gone through. I know that we submit our documents and our editorial letters to a particular to to the, to the Ministry of Defence, and then they issue us cards based on that. Apparently, uh, all reporters are checked out by the Ukrainian security agencies. I don't know actually uh, personally of anybody who's been uh, rejected recently. So I, I, I can't really speak to their procedures because their procedures are secret. Now, once you're in country, it's basically you show your Armed Forces Accreditation Card, and that's effectively a little bit like your passport, a license to, you know, within reason, go wherever you want and speak to whoever you want. I should say, by the way, that with the exception of the very, very close frontline areas, there isn't a lot of interference in the work that we do. If you're walking around the cities, you basically have free reign to talk to whoever you want, uh, to go wherever you want. And um, I mean, in a way, I find it almost strange and a bit scary about the fact that you could literally be in Poland or Romania just as a completely normal person and you could jump on a train and within about 10 to 15 hours go from sort of completely normal, peaceful Eastern European civilization to the front, very near the front lines of a really, really badly raging war zone. Amazing. Adolman.
7: Tom, when they kicked your uh, door down and the, you know, the, the episode you described, was that in Ukrainian or in English? Did they know that you were foreigners?
1: Um, that was in Russian, but my my friend who I was with uh, later translated what they were saying as he speaks fluent Russian.
7: And generally on uh, on language, um, I'm I'm presuming that you generally work with an interpreter, right? You would be
1: right on that. My 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 uh, I've been trying to learn some Ukrainian and it's very far from uh, uh, and some Russian and it's been very far from a level where I would be able to conduct interviews in. That being said, it's not particularly... I haven't found it... Ukraine has a reasonable level of English, higher than I expected, uh, including all over the country. So, you know, I'll I'll just give you an example of where... When I came to Mikolaev, I'm doing the stories I've said on... um, uh, you know, people who've lived through the, through the war in Nikolai for six months and the, the young woman on the bus spoke English. I struck up a conversation with her and, um, I spoke to her today being like, I'd be really nice. By the way, if you could, um, if I could interview you and also speak to a number of your friends and, you know, she managed to find, uh, two other friends, both of whom spoke good enough English to do an interview, who I've interviewed and I'll be publishing their accounts next week. So yes, I normally work with a translator, but it's also not that difficult to find people who speak you know good, reasonably good english as well
7: how much does it feel how much do you feel that limits you um in what you do previously we've had uh, war reporters on here who like like you work with interpreters and they said you know sometimes it's difficult especially when it's a particularly difficult topics people who've lost loved ones um people who went through um you know gruesome injury or were tortured themselves or anything like that that it's very difficult for them to approach them properly and it's very difficult to have that conversation through an interpreter sometimes is that part of the reason why you're going to be focusing on you know say this younger cohort uh, for this project that you mentioned earlier just because of the language barrier not really being there
1: so that wasn't. A, that wasn't. A, I'm not saying that the other reporters are wrong, but there that, that wasn't a consideration in this specific project. So uh, this specific project, because the young people are generally more mobile, and so many young people left during the war, the question I was looking specifically to answer was why did these particular young people choose to stay in Mikhailov uh, rather than leave? So that wasn't really a consideration, but perhaps it does Is sort of maybe unconsciously I am drawn towards more of the topics surrounding young people just because it is easier to talk uh, with them like that. Uh, that said, um, one thing that can be useful – is if you find an interpreter or someone who speaks English locally who has known and who speaks both languages, who has known them personally. So I'll give you an example. When I was doing the project I did in Kharkiv, I had a team member with me um, who spoke Russian. However, I in I was talking to one of the sort of the organisers of the metro, if, for those who don't know uh, under in Kharkiv during the worst of the war there were thousands of people living in the metro stations and we talked to one woman and rather than use my interpreter I asked if one of the volunteers who helped run the metro stations organisation whether she would translate for me simply because this woman and her had a pre-existing connection and so I, I decided to do it that way rather than rely on my interpreter, because, and I felt I got, you know, what was extremely uh, interesting. It was a horrifying story, actually. You know, she um, broke down crying when she told me that her daughter, who lived in Russia refused to believe anything that she heard she was like she called her own mother a liar just because of what she'd seen on russian tv um but there is some truth to that but i also think there are ways to get around it as well uh, if you're diligent enough now also i should be more diligent myself in learning the languages here but i've only been here for a few months so i hope people have some patience with me on that thank you tom uh that's
7: excellent jump on to carl
11: um, not a direct war question, but you know, when you go into a country, uh, you know, war is definitely the context there. But you're there for months. You you know, you're encountering maybe a, a new people and a new culture. So just from your personal experience as a newcomer in a in, in a new land, you know, are there things that have stood out to you about the Ukrainian people and culture, or even cuisine, what you like and don't like. Uh, that that would be interesting to share.
1: So one thing I've, I think it's worth pointing out about Ukraine is that I know people have the sort of idea of sort of Ukraine as being a sort of run-down post-Soviet industrial dumb almost and it just really isn't like it's uh, one thing I've actually been surprised about in Ukraine is how generally well things that you wouldn't expect to have worked ended up working during the war. Uh, best, best example I have is the train lines. I was absolutely blown away by how even within you know week one or two of the war you could jump on a train from Lviv and be in Kharkiv like it just just blew me away. That people continue to be able to, and you know, those, those trains must have saved thousands of lives, literally just for, for, for the fact that they keep working. The fact that, for instance, you know, um, you know, one of the first things that often go down uh, in wars are banking systems. The fact that you can walk into a supermarket in Kravatska Slavyansk and still pay with your phone, pay with contactless card—that uh, that still kind of blows me away. And the fact that you know, um, mobile internet service, a mobile cell phone service, sort of. I, I, another thing I think is also about how diverse Ukraine is, both in terms of its different areas and its different cultural heritages and backgrounds, but how quickly it managed to unite in this one cause, how, you know, this idea that the Russians had that the country would fragment uh, into multiple different pieces, how that never even came close to happening. I thought that was very, very interesting as well. Um, You know, in the times that I've been to Ukraine, as I've been in Ukraine several times before the war, I was often struck quite actually by the architectural beauty and the beauty of the landscape. That really, really stood out to me. I kept on, I used to keep on thinking why Lviv and Kiev weren't tourist destinations in the same way that Krakow or Prague or Tallinn are. And, you know, I'm very much hoping that after the war, there can be uh, uh, a, a sort of a tourism resurgence here. Pardon for my Ukrainian listeners after the victory. That's um, uh, off the top of my head. Thanks for that.
3: And uh, Auntie and uh, G- uh, go ahead, Auntie, then Gigi.
2: I believe JJ was before me.
3: Help moderate. Thanks. I didn't know. JJ, would you like to go or do you want Anthony to go?
9: Um, I will certainly ask my question. Um, When someone thinks that a journalist in a war zone um, or thinks about a journalist in a war zone, they may have a preconceived notion of what your life and profession is like. I'm curious about the difference between the perception of what you do as opposed to what you actually do.
1: It's a good question. However, do you mind if I come back to you as to what that preconception is and I can tell you, you know, how how closely it matches up to my experience? Absolutely. Yeah, that's my question. Like, what's your preconceived
9: notion? Oh, um, well, I think that um, people in a way might have a romanticized Idea, um, and that you're constantly under fire, and um, that you're constantly stressed. And I'm sort of wondering about those times in between. Um, and, uh, does that make sense?
1: Yes, yes, that makes sense. I mean, so there's a there's a famous quote that the military use that a lot of uh, you know the military. The, the quote is "Hurry up and wait." which means that a lot of what you do in a war zone is not this sort of kind of glamorous being right on the front line trying to get, you know, the one great action shot or whatever. But a lot of it is dealing with kind of mindless, monotonous bureaucracy. A lot of it is waiting around for where, being told whether you can or can't do something. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stress involved, but stress is not necessarily confined to just, but you, you know, you're not just stressed because you're on the front line. You're also stressed because you're around a lot of very, Stressed and often traumatized people who've gone through a very difficult time and that. Sort of can can affect you. You know, other people's emotions around you affect your emotions very very clearly. Um, I often find, to be perfectly honest, though, that a lot of what the stereotypes about war reporters are, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to them. There's a lot of people here, for instance, who um, I know don't feel very much at home in their home countries. There's a lot of people. It's it's very predominantly young men and women um, who are very much advent. Seekers in many ways have a very, very high risk profile in many, many ways who are quite easily um, bored, might be the wrong word, but aren't particularly satisfied with the jobs that a lot of their peers are doing that involve you being um, sort of, you know, whether it's in an office somewhere or or sort of the people who kind of crave very kind of peak experiences in the sense of, you know, a uh, uh, and you know, I think the thing about people being adrenaline junkies is actually quite true. Uh, to be perfectly honest, even if a lot of uh, conflict reporters don't want to admit it, um, I think we should be comfortable admitting things like that. Yeah, I hope that's helpful.
9: Perfectly, thank you. Okay,
3: Nancy.
2: Thank you. Uh, so uh, I was wondering, uh, in your in your travels in country. Uh, uh, Previous uh, journalists we've had on here have uh, often mentioned that uh, ma- many big news uh, news organizations uh, don't have a single uh, single reporter in country. They're just regurgitating something they uh, they get from other sources. So I, I was wondering, what what is your experience? Are are the big uh, media organizations somehow represented in country, or is it is it more uh, Freelance guys that are actually there. That's a good question, and yes
1: and no is the answer, because one thing I've noticed is that uh, a lot of big media organisations, well, they might have people in country, those people will not that com- or quite commonly not be that close to the action or to or to the to, to the particularly bad places. You know, at the start of the war, for instance, Lviv was absolutely. Shock full of journalists. Now Kiev, there's loads of journalists coming in and out of Kiev. A lot of them aren't going to the places like nikolaev or Kharkiv or Donbass. That said, there are actually less freelancers here, um, than I expected there to be. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a fairly, by the stage, close-knit community. Most of us know each other, even if not personally, then by reputation. And there's, Less than I expected. Uh, both of the big media or organisations and of or freelancers. Also, big media organisations tend to cycle people in and out quite quickly. So I often feel that a lot of the people they send in don't necessarily have time to uh, get on the ground. There are some very very notable exceptions to that to that rule, but that's something I have noticed. Yeah.
2: Right. One reason I asked was also because I know that uh, Ule, our local uh, state-owned broadcaster, actually has has some people in country, at least one or two. And uh, yeah, so I I was interested in your take on that. So thank you very much, and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you
1: i i probably, am okay to take one or two more questions, but it is about 10 o'clock at night here, so I will, I, um, have to leave soon enough. All right. So
3: what air defense doing? No, I'm just kidding. Tom, uh, Russian President Putin has, uh, come out with his multipolar world nonsense again. Big, big speech in the Kremlin there. Um, who is, he, who is he talking to? Because I mean, it's not you, right? I mean, it's not normal journalists. Uh, is this more more of the same internal
1: propaganda? Uh, it might be internal propaganda, and it also might be uh, trying to shore up who he potentially thinks as allies, say, you know, in countries like China. Um, I mean, considering that the allies... yeah, ally, maybe? Uh, but yeah, yeah, potentially. Uh, or Brazil, or India, or or... or you know african countries there was an interesting and i wish i had it off the top of my head analysis of how russian propaganda was being targeted in latin america and in africa um you know towards the war and the idea that you know of nato as a sort of a colonialist power uh, uh, and things like that and how that that sometimes did reach a receptive audience
10: yeah
3: it almost seems as though that his uh his tree's going to climb down from is that he's managed to change the world from a unipolar superpower world to a multipolar because I mean I don't think anyone in Zimbabwe or in Nigeria or even in India really thinks that Russia is doing this so that, that there are more superpower or there are more people with power at the table. I think that's a little silly um also well, with how badly the
1: armys done here they're not yeah. Yeah. As
3: who as are they' not really do. Or are they trying to fool. I mean they've just proven that they're less of a power than they've ever been. But all right. Uh listen, it's been a it's been a pleasure to have you, Tom. Please do come anytime you'd like. Uh we are uh, your second home, perhaps, and your home on the internet. Um we uh if you could do us a favor, if you haven't already liked Tom or followed him, please do I followed you Tom. Uh and great work in Afghanistan and uh he's done great work in Afghanistan, nagorno Karabakh, and he's now in Ukraine, uh, helping get the story out. So people like him, his voices are super important because he helps amplify Ukrainian voices on the ground. So we uh, wish you uh, the, the best of luck with your work, continued success, um, and we do hope you stop by whenever you do,
1: whenever you can. Not a problem, and I'll be here for a while. Excellent.
9: Well, Slava Ukraini. Have your luck. Slava.